Before we get started, I have some announcements to make. We're going to be at CrimeCon this year. Use the discount code GENY19 to buy your tickets. CrimeCon is in New Orleans this year. Should be lots of fun. Also, Aaron and I are going out to the UK on July 6th and 7th. We'll be in Manchester and London. We'll put out more information on venue and tickets and stuff uh, as we figure it all out. Also, I will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival July 13th in Chicago. Check out their website, tcpf2019.com, or find them out on social media. There'll be lots of true crime podcasts there. All right, let's get started. Since the last episode was pretty heavy, decided to go with something a little lighter today. I typically keep a lot of my stress in my upper back and shoulder blades. And uh, about the last 10 years of my life, my left shoulder blade is now just a perpetual gnawing pain that is always grinding and clicking no matter what I do. Massage therapy, I've seen chiropractors, but it just never ends. Cold days and stressful weeks, of course, make the pain even worse. It's something that I don't share with people. But on today's episode, I'm going to speak with two guests. Both guests talk about how it sucks not being able to function, not being able to work, and they strive to be productive and accomplish day-to-day activities that most of us take for granted. My first guest gets swine flu, and his life has changed from there. My name is Jael. Oh, Jesus, going to be 27 next week. And I've been recently diagnosed with fibromyalgia after around a decade now of trying to get answers. Unfortunately, fibromyalgia is just sort of the diagnosis that they throw at you when they believe that you have chronic pain, but they're not really sure why it's happening. Growing up, I was actually extraordinarily healthy, would maybe catch like a cold a year. Then my last year of high school was actually during the uh, swine flu outbreak. Many people who never got sick and had amazing immune systems, I got nailed super hard with that. I was out from classes for a solid two weeks. You know, expected I'd be a little bit down for the count for a while. Then I just sort of never got better. Two years in, I actually had to take a year off between high school and college because I was just not well enough to go to school. I shouldn't have gone to school when I did, but I was just so sick of laying in bed. I'd graduated high school early and I'd been super excited to finally start college. And then I ended up just being basically on bed rest for around a year. I ended up delaying my entrance into college. Also, um, getting admitted into a different college than I'd originally planned. I'd gotten full rides a couple of places, but because I got sick, you know, I had to defer. And my parents were just like, you cannot be going halfway across the country when you're this sick. I ended up going to Texas State University, which was an hour away from home. So, you know, enough that I felt like I was independent, but close enough that if there was a medical emergency, I wasn't going to die in my dorm. And, you know, by the time I was able to go to college, I was managing but there were still so many times I was just 
I'd get home from classes and just lay on my back on the floor of my dorm, unable to do anything, try to go out with friends, but I mostly just knew my roommates, yeah. <laughs> and that was about it. A few years after that that I started actively pursuing, okay, what's going on now? Because it's been a couple years now. I'm not better, especially that the headaches at that point were just terrible. I was missing class because of them. Tried to find myself a good primary care provider. Initially, I found one who seemed great. Like she really wanted to work with me on getting my pain level down and like getting to the bottom of what was going on. And she'd prescribed me Utalbital for my migraine headaches. Mm -hmm. And what she told me was take one to two of these as needed. So I took them as needed whenever I was getting a migraine, which was so often at that point, I did go through the prescription over the course of a month and she prescribed me, I think 30 of them. So it seemed reasonable that I, that was a month's prescription and I came back to her. She was horrified I'd gone through that much and promptly ordered a bunch of drug tests on me. She, she actually checked my arms for track marks, berated me about, you know, my use of this pain medication, which she had told me to use as needed. And I told her I'm getting migraines several times a week. Yeah, I actually walked out of there in tears. I did not go through with any of the tests she'd ordered. I was just so upset. And how could somebody do this to me? I, what sort of a drug user comes in asking for help in the way that I did? So yeah, between then and when I next started going to see doctors to try and get to the bottom of this, it was Oh, a good three years. I went to them at that point, basically with, look, here are my symptoms. Here's what I think's going on. Run these tests. Because I figured, you know, it, nobody wants to be told how to do their job. But at yeah. the same time, I figured if I come in and I'm like, look, I don't want you to just throw medication at me. I want you to fix, figure out what it is and fix it. So that's when we started running tests for autoimmune. So what they'll do when they run tests for autoimmune is they run the anti-nuclear antibody test, which is kind of a non-specific, you have an autoimmune reaction going on test. And then they order, I think they call them cascades, where they test for specific antibodies to basically different DNA, I believe it is. And so they ran those. And the ANA flagged worrisome, but none of the specific ones were coming back. And this started several years of them just being like, oh, well, come back later and we'll run it again. Because sometimes these things, they'll just all of a sudden come up positive. It really depends on what's going on. Apparently, because it's such an up and down thing, like you can have it being very active and then not. And I was like, well, yeah, I ended up seeing several rheumatologists. I've been bounced all over the place. I had one rheumatologist I spoke to who after she was initially very receptive and then when the tests came back negative yet again she was like well clearly you just need to walk more the symptoms at that point were still the joint pain just overwhelming fatigue and brain fog my thinking's not as clear as it was mm -hmm. when i was in high school that's spend so much time day to just feel like oh, god I'm an idiot which it's frustrating because i can still do things at as high of a quality as 
I always have. It's just it, stuff takes me longer. I sometimes forget simple things. Um, so yeah, that uh, still recurrent headaches and rheumatologist, it turns out when you come in and they're like, so where does it hurt? Kind of everywhere. It's It's all of it. They don't so much know what to do with you then. But yes, yeah, so the hilarious thing with that appointment was I had actually walked from my house to the, the clinic <laughs> that she was at. It wears you down dealing with these people because it's just every time you go to a new one, it's like, all right, let's start from the top. And it's basically, you know, starting from where I started here with, you know, I used to be very healthy and then I caught swine flu and it's just been a shit show. Yeah, and I've, you know not been asking them to prescribe me opiates or anything. My primary care doctor, God bless her, has been amazing. And that was an option that was on the table. At that point, with the amount of pain I was in, it was pure agony 24-7 to the point where even sleeping, you know, you lay down and it's just, wow, I am supremely conscious of how much everything hurts. But yeah, so that was an option that was on the table. And I was like, I don't want to do that a because i know the hole you can dig yourself into and b because if i'm going to be seeing specialists i don't want them to see that on my record and make a judge a judgment on me even faster so the things that i'm on now which have been working pretty well one of the things that tipped them off to the fibromyalgia was it's such a bizarre symptom but my skin would hurt. Like, have you ever had a really bad sunburn? It was like that, like a sunburn on top of a bruise. And there were so many mornings when this would happen. We're just like, I'd manage to fight the fatigue and get out of bed and get a shower. And then I would just sit on the edge of my bed and cry because I didn't want to put clothes on because it hurt. <laughs> Finally, when I brought that up, the doctor was like, oh, I think it might be fibromyalgia and there are um these points on your body that tend to be extremely sensitive and that's the test that they use for fibromyalgia and why I was finally able to get a diagnosis at least but yeah so they put me on gabapentin which is a it's usually a anti-seizure drug but it also works for nerve pain naltrexone which you might be familiar with as the drug that they give to counteract overdoses in small amounts it actually has therapeutic purposes for pain and then they put me on a muscle relaxer because uh surprise surprise being in pain 24 7 makes you really tense i haven't even been like conscious of how bad it was until um it, you know sometimes because i'm just not super with it. I'll forget to renew the prescriptions on things and go a couple days without my medication. Oh my God. I have a pretty darn high pain tolerance. Your threshold for it, like the point at which you start to notice it definitely goes down once you're on meds. And if you stop them, it's just like, wow, how was I walking around like this? Like, how was I going to school and work and functioning when it was this bad yeah so the the things that i'm on this is the, the issue with the stigma is you it doesn't matter what you're on you just can't escape it a lot of people a lot of doctors even don't like people being on naltrexone because of the association with 
it being a prescription for addicts, which is just silly. I mean, it's the thing that they use to help people stop. 50 milligrams is what they give people when they're trying to help them with addictions. And for the therapeutic dose, it's four milligrams. I mean, it's not even comparable. And, oh, Jesus. If I bet you if you Google gabapentin, the first things that are going to come up are it being a, quote, drug of abuse and i'm sure you can hear the heavy quotation marks in my voice yeah. right now you will also see it called a um opioid alternative which is hilarious it's not even remotely related to opioids because word got out that some addicts thought they could potentiate the highs from other things granted n none of this is based off of any scientific studies it's all based off of how we heard some addicts were um trying to use it to make the high on like heroin last longer it's all over the news now because a lot of places a lot of states are cracking down on the prescriptions and so now i didn't used to have to show an id when i picked up my prescription and now they have to go and check over my id and make sure it's a real id and before i can get my gabapentin which again it's it's just an anti-seizure drug I had offhandedly mentioned it. I was over at a friend's place and I had been talking about the stuff I was on and her roommate works at a pharmacy. Her roommate was all like, oh, that's gabapentin's a, a dangerous drug. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? She's like, oh, well, you know, we have people coming in, like going on higher and higher prescriptions and, you know, trying to get their medication early. And I'm like, they... They're probably chronic pain patients. You know how good it feels when like all of a sudden things don't hurt? Seriously, when you have chronic pain and it's anyone who hasn't actually gone through it, I don't know that there's a proper like analogy for it because it's, you know, one thing like to have acute pain to, you know, break your toe or something, but it's, a totally different thing when it's just it's internal and it's constant and you're just dealing with that all the time and you wake up in the morning and it's like oh great <laughs> everything still hurts yeah it's extremely frustrating and it's part of the reason you know i so i have this diagnosis now and a lot of my friends are like well why are you still like trying to chase down answers like they, they gave you a diagnosis i'm like you don't get it this is what they throw at people and they're like we have exhausted all the other usual culprits and we're not quite sure what to do with you like here here's a label that says yes you're in pain we have no freaking clue why it you know it, it seems like it might be easy to just give up and be like all right fine this is just this is it all right cool but i'm really driven and, and no offense to other people who would just be like, all right, fine, this is this is good enough. But I've been for the past see, seven years now, been completely supporting myself on my own, working full time and going to school. And to just have to like sit back on this idea that like this is just how it's going to be forever, I can't do that. I would like to know why. And even if it ends up being something that can't be fixed, then at least I have a better answer. And 
my soul will rest a little bit more easy. <laughs> was horribly depressed for years when, you know, nobody knew what was wrong with me. No one was even taking me seriously enough to be like, okay, we should, you know, figure out if there's any medication that might work for this. I just remember, like, I thank God not in such a dark place now, but I remember just being like, oh my God, if I have to live like this for the rest of my life, I may as well just kill myself because what, what life is there if you're living like this? It's, yeah, it's one of those just sad realities where it does seem just fucking hard. But like I said, I'm very driven. I've got a lot of stuff I still want to get done. The, the treatment of chronic pain patients is if like, we're if we have any say in this going on is ridiculous to me and i it, some people they do decide that their best course of action because you know there are various different types of chronic pain you know in my case it's sort of an all over everything pain but for people who have more acute types that haven't been helped by other things yeah opiates are going to be the thing that they go to to finally not be hurting and watching this whole thing where the you know the cdc as if you know the, the cdc is telling doctors that they need to start treating their patients differently and stop prescribing them opiates has just been aggravating to watch unfold because it's the the problem you know is partially with the type of drugs that they are they are addictive substances and unfortunately no matter what you're on a lot of times you build up a tolerance it doesn't matter if it's opiates if it's you know my gabapentin i've had to up several times not because i'm addicted to it but because your body builds up a tolerance anyone who's been on adhd medication is probably also familiar with this where after a bit the dose that used to work doesn't work as well anymore and a good doctor will know how to monitor that to make sure that the person's pain is being managed because let's be honest, fixed isn't <laughs> really the operative word there. Managed is really the best you can get most of the time without things that happen. Like what happened to me when I was on the migraine medication where my doctor just went like, eh, you're an addict and pulled the prescription from me and <laughs> A lot of these things you cannot go cold turkey off of, but this is what's happening to some people. Oh, no, you're on too much. We're just going to cut you off. People don't realize, yes, you can become addicted to this, but we're not just dealing with people who went out and decided one day, you know what I'd like to do? Get hooked on opiates. That sounds like fun. (laughs) You're dealing with people who they need it in order to function, not not because of the medication itself, but because of where their pain is at. People are thinking about this in the wrong way. It's it's not they need the medication because they need the medication. They need it because otherwise their quality of life goes down. Chronic illness is not just physical. It can be mental as well. Like People who are on those are trying to fix something, whatever it may be. And when the approach has been, okay, we're just going to cut the chronic pain patients who are getting their prescriptions off. Mm -hmm. 
it, it's it's going about it all wrong because people are suffering and the scary thing is too you know think about someone who's just been cut off of the only thing that made them able to function it is entirely possible that they will be desperate enough not to hurt that they will go to street drugs and that's you don't want people's only source of medication should be i'm just gonna go buy it on the streets because that's just fueling the whole problem these policies are putting people's lives in danger is really the long and short of it you know again speaking from experience pot does wonders for all sorts of chronic pain and although i am lucky enough to live in a state that has both legal and medical marijuana um as you may have gathered from the fact that I mentioned I work for a transit organization and I do possess a CDL and I do drive buses on occasion, I'm drug tested. It doesn't matter if I have a medical card, even the CDL draw jobs, anything with a commercial driver's license, that's federal. So I technically work for the government and I am subject to their laws on this and is frustrating because, okay, yeah, I could find a different job, but a, this one pays way better than anything else that I'd be able to easily find currently. And B, it comes with the flexibility that I need in order to function in a professional environment. So, you know, it's, it's a toss up and like, these are the hard choices you have to make when you are dealing with chronic pain. Like I have to go to work and pretend to be an able-bodied person most of the time, you know, so I don't get my CDL revoked also because um, you've got yearly physicals in order to keep that. It's a constant struggle. I don't want to be unemployed, but, you know, your options become sort of limited in a lot of ways. Like, you, you know, I'm lucky that I've got my IT workplace is so flexible, but, yeah, I'm still subject to other laws that definitely make it harder. But, yeah, just... It takes a lot of extra energy to pretend to be an able-bodied person. This becomes a big part of your life. And I know it gets tiring for people. I tell my friends, like, if I'm whining too much, like, please just tell me to shut up. But yeah. <laughs> try to be gentle with the people in your life like that because it it is, whether you like it or not, it becomes a part of your identity because I don't think you could survive if it wasn't. You are not getting rid of it anytime soon unless there's some gigantic medical advancement in the next few years so it's kind of that ad adapt or die sort of thing like either i can accept that this is part of me and i can just roll with it mm -hmm. or you can't always be fighting a part of yourself you know yeah that's yeah really the biggest part of it because i sort of had i guess a bit of a crisis this past year where I was just like, do I not want to get better? Like, why is this, why have I made this such a big part of myself when I realized that it just is. It's accepting that, yeah, this is going to be a part of you and it's going to influence how you live your life. Either you acknowledge that or you're going to spend a long damn time just fighting with yourself when, you know, your body's already doing a pretty damn good job of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's... 
There's already enough turmoil going on. Don't add to it. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. For my next guest, I speak with Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. She has a somewhat unique condition with her back, and she talks about how it has completely changed her life. I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up for a long time. I just, I needed to get away from my hometown for, for many, many reasons. And I did that and I went to an engineering school and I was pursuing engineering and I hated it, but everybody hated it. Like it was Northern New York and it was dark and cold and miserable. Everybody's miserable. Fine. But then I had a moment where I got sick and I was in the hospital and I had to sort of stop thinking about classwork and start just reading for fun again and, and that kind of deal. And somebody brought me Mindhunter by John Douglas, which is what the Netflix series is based on. And I read it and I was like, I could do this. I could do this and be good at it. Like th- this guy sounds like he likes his job. Oh my God. Like I never even thought about that as an option. So I dropped all my engineering courses and switched to a psych major. So I graduated from an engineering school with a psych degree, because why not? And that's the first time I ever felt inspired, really inspired Mm -hmm. to do the work. Um, I did not join the FBI because I am not comfortable with having guns in my home. And I am not comfortable with traveling as much as a profiler would have to do. So I went into forensic psychology instead and so on. How did you break your back? I have a genetic disorder called ankylosing spondylitis, which is a fancy way of saying that my body has decided I need another spine. So there's a very thin sheath of bone that just starts growing from the tailbone up. And that sheath of bone is super fragile. So there are records of people breaking it by sneezing and that kind of thing. And I I just, I stepped wrong on a playground and something popped and it was that sheath of bone between the vertebrae that broke and it's very dangerous because it's super sharp very brittle and there's not very much they can do except let it it sort of grows over itself and it it sort of heals itself in a way but it's very painful like the disorder on its own is very painful but I was able to work through it but having this extra level I just couldn't it took me a very very long time to heal since then, I've developed epilepsy because why the fuck not? Oh, my God. So that has changed some of my cognitive functioning. I can't learn people's names very well. And I have trouble with speech. My speech is sort of halting. I've got a weird cadence and a lot of pauses because I'm constantly, like, shuffling for words. And so I can't go back to work. I didn't notice your cadence or shuffling for words, actually. I'm not tired yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I, I guess I feel I have that way worse than most people, especially when I'm recording and I'm trying to think about what I say. Mm-hmm. It, I lose words and I can't mm-hmm. come up with something, you know, very specific. Like, okay, let's say it's a, it's a blood test. I'll just, it's where they draw blood and then they go through a testing process. <laughs> like I can't just come up with I'm blood right there with you. I'm right there with you. Do you know about the murder birds? No, what was <laughs> the whole Peterson case, right? And I am very certain, very certain that the owl didn't do it. But 
several months ago, I was driving up in New Hampshire where you can go from comparative city-like areas to the middle of nowhere in five minutes. So I'm in the middle of nowhere and I'm stopped on this country road because there are people on horseback. And I have to practice that because I kept seeing horse people, which people were then asking like centaurs, what the fuck? No, people on horseback were crossing the road in front of me. And so I'm just sitting there and my car has a sunroof. And so that's open. It's a beautiful day. And then there's this like rustling overhead and this huge motherfucking bird lands on the hood of my car. And if I am sort of tired, but also if I am stressed or surprised, all of my words disappear. And so I'm sitting there and because the bird is looking at me and it's looking at the horse people and it's looking at me and it's, looking at, and, and it's not moving because it's a, it's a, it's a holy shit. It's a thing. It's a, oh my God, it's a, it's a murder bird <laughs> because that is how my brain works. Yeah. That's how it goes. Uh, <laughs> you have epilepsy. Yes. And you have this tiny sheath bone. Yes. You could probably break it again. Easily. Wow. I, you know, I do weird shit medically. Apparently, I collect diagnoses. Like some people collect salt and pepper shakers. That's not for me. <laughs> wow. All right. So <laughs> back to your podcasting. I don't know the level of, of strength to put on it. So like, I wouldn't say that podcasting saved my life, but I would say that it revolutionized it. I would say that it refocused it because I was sitting on my couch doing, accomplishing very little, you know, sort of telling the kids where to move on the weekend, but like I was stuck and that put me into a very dark headspace. Like, I'm not accomplishing anything. My work in the world is done. I'm living through my children vicariously. Like, that is my contribution to the world now. My competence and productivity in this world is done. And so I'm watching the kids grow up and I'm waiting to die. And those are the things I'm doing. Like, that's where I got. Because disability sucks. You know, it's not just a little placard in the car. Like, you are effectively acknowledging that I am never going back to this life that I had. And I loved my work. That was my thing. <laughs> you know, I, that was my, my Olympic sport, my powerlifting, my whatever. Like I, I felt good even after a really long day. And so I missed it a lot. And I, I had to grieve that. And so starting the podcast, I don't, sit around and think for a long time about whether I should do things because I don't give a shit. What if I fail? Okay. For the cost of doing some research with people and a $50 microphone, yeah. I went from like, it was New Year's Day that I, I turned to my husband and said, I think I want to start a podcast. Are you on board? Because it's going to take a lot of my time and attention. And he was like, yeah, go for it. And I think he got tired of seeing me sit on the couch, you know, but nobody else can sort of hand you a hobby or yeah. he do something sort of motivation you know you just you have to find it yourself you have to want it so he was like yeah yeah yeah, do that and february 1st was my first episode so yeah. it was quick and i feel like myself again i feel like i have 
I feel like I'm okay. This sounds so fucking earthy, crunchy, and that is not me. Okay, but I feel like I am helping people. I am reaching people in some way. I have gotten emails that have said, "Your words helped me. I feel less crazy because of something you said. I never thought of it that way, and I feel better." And those are the best emails to get, aren't they? they that rocks my world. Like I feel like I have a purpose again. So, like I said, I don't think it saved my life because I wasn't suicidal so much as just spinning my wheels. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I just rolled over 100,000 downloads. So somebody's listening. Yeah, we are I'm, listening. I'm grateful. I, I would guess that one of the reasons my husband likes that I'm in podcasting, you know, is, you know, he's a, a huge supporter of it. He has never once complained about the amount of time it takes me away from the kids or takes me away from him you know and it certainly interrupts things at times and he just flows around it he just lets it be and I think that's because you know when my husband and I got married we married a certain person right somebody you have a certain idea of you know this person pretty well we had lived together by the time we got married we already had a child together so blah blah he just he knew who I was he had a certain sense of who I was and then in 2010 I got sick um, so I was diagnosed with this this back thing in like 2005, but I was coping with it reasonably well. I was still working. I was still functioning, whatever. And then in 2010, I got very sick after childbirth and everything changed. Every, I mean, I was in a coma for a week and a half. And one of the first things I said to him, well, I was still in the ICU, was we need to see a therapist. We're going to need help getting through this. Because everything changed about who I was my brain changed I had to relearn how to handwrite things I had this word aphasia it was partial so I still could speak but I would get stuck looking for one word and I could not find a synonym it just bang you know like a brick wall bang and I was on tremendous doses of opiates like the human maximum dosage I was I had nine it took over nine months for my surgical wounds to heal so i was fucked up i changed chronic pain changes who you are it strips you of layers of coping and just your sense of self in the world your sense of usefulness and optimism and all of all of the things you hope you can be have gone away and it's a grieving process and it's this feeling like like you're a, 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 a like a like you're a solid block of, of granite or something and you keep having pieces carved away you keep losing pieces and, and you're left with something and what are you going to do with this you know and is this good enough and often you don't feel like it's good enough and you get stuck and dark and I changed. I, I used to be very driven. You know, I used to be working a lot and doing a lot with the kids and, you know, making Halloween costumes and shit like that. And, you know, just I, I used to be a very brighter, very much brighter person, very much more engaged and engaging. And then I was somebody who couldn't get out of bed. And couldn't remember things about myself. Like, 
Okay, so when I was in the coma, the social work staff at the hospital do a thing where they they have a a fairly big piece of paper, like a big sheet of construction paper kind of thing, with lines on it, like you'd have a kid fill out in preschool. You know, my name is, here's where I live, here's who's in my family, here's my favorite color, shit like that. And they filled it out about me as sort of a gentle reminder to the doctors that were coming in and looking this at this unconscious lump in a bed that this is a person and she has a family and she has a personality. But when I came into the coma, I, I couldn't sleep very much for reasons. And I would lay on my side and I read it and memorized it. And that's how I learned who my favorite band was. And that's how I learned my favorite color. I learned months later that I had recently gone on a trip to Paris. I had zero memory of it i sort of formed these false memories by looking at pictures of the trip but i don't remember what it felt like or smelled like you know because it's just gone that whole year i don't remember my pregnancy but i damn well had one because i had a third kid you know and just that whole year leading up to the coma is gone and i lost myself in ways I even have difficulty articulating. It's not just about moving funny and, and, and needing a cane and struggling for words. Like there's just a certain sense of self that's just gone. And I had to grieve that. And it took a long time. And every time it felt like I was starting to reach stability again, some new shit would come along. Like I broke my back in 2014 and then I developed epilepsy in 2016. So it's like, Jesus H Christ, like I can't keep getting up. I can't keep getting up. And I know that I cannot. And so I have a DNR in place at the hospital, which is an intense and difficult thing for a, a woman of 41 to do. I have. We're the same age. <laughs> you know, and I, I, I would be okay with emergency res- resuscitation. But if there are machines required to keep me alive, then no. And that's hard. It's hard to look at your, your partner and say, unplug. Don't even plug me in in the first place. You know, we're too young to think like that. But I feel like there's a there's a finite number of times that you can keep getting up again. And I, through this process of starting a podcast, I mean, it sounds bizarre or goofy or stupid or something to me. Crunchy, fluffy, I don't know, squishy. I pick, a, pick a, an adjective. It's Mad Libs, but it's my life. of Purpose. Yeah, yeah, I have a purpose, but also a return to self. By doing the podcasting, I am tapping into things I didn't realize I still knew. I'm tapping into an ability to think about questions or an ability to engage in a conversation that I forgot that I had. I'm more myself again, and that's fucking magical. It's really awesome. It really is. And I'm making connections. I'm meeting people. I'm social in a way that I I couldn't be. So that's secondary magic, you know.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.